it's that stack of books. We are back at the Brian Corner Cafe. I am Steve Scher. I am Nancy Pearl. And because this is a big table, we're going around and you folks are going to say who you are. Hi, I'm Kathy. Kate. David. Jessica. Sarah. Katie. That's good. Wow. That's good. That's a big table. Whoa. We love it. You people can join in if you're going to be that quiet. You got very quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> They put new baffling in the Bryant Corner Cafe, and not only is it quieter, but apparently you all can hear us better. <laughs> so, so we sounded like we were formal. Continue to speak among yourselves. Uh, Nancy Pearl has a, a moderate stack of books today, and also I'm putting something to you folks since, you know, Halloween. Truly scary books and fun scary books. Think about that. As we, as we go around the table. And if you have none, that's fine. I have none because I don't really read scary books. They frighten me. I don't go to scary movies either. You? No, I don't, I don't read scary. If a book gets too scary, I don't want to read it. And, and, there's, and plus, it, these days, all that I'm reading because of what's happening in the world, I mean, you can't read the newspaper anymore. Who would want to read what happened to the ISIS hostages before... They were beheaded. I mean, that was a big part of the New York Times front page yesterday. I just said, I'm not reading the front page of the New York Times. So I'm just reduced to rereading and rereading and rereading and rereading. So right, I'm gonna I, I want, boring. I'm going to come back to scary because there is something about it that I've had this conversation with Robert Horton about scary movies the last two weeks, and I have the same problem, but he makes an argument, which I will make. Uh, all right, so look at this. Look at this right on top, Nancy. I think we've done this podcast five times, and five times Nancy has said, "You know, if you want to read somebody really good, you should read Peter Temple." Peter Temple, I know, I, I know, and I am just cycling through Peter Temple. I'm waiting. I ordered a book. Uh, it's out of print, so I got a used copy of it, or I found a used copy of it, I'm waiting for them to ship it to me, of the one Peter Temple novel I have not yet read. Um, and I finished the one that I was in the middle of yesterday, so now I'm just going back and rereading them all yet again, and I start with my very first, the very first one I read in my uh, just total favorite called The Broken Shore. So the main character in Peter Temple, in, in this novel by Peter Temple, is a policeman, a Melbourne policeman named Joe Cashin, who was in a terrible, um, had a terrible encounter with some uh, criminals and is now on medical leave and has gone back um, into the, into the Melbourne countryside, outside the city of Melbourne, um, to really heal himself and of course gets involved with another case. He has two large black poodles who uh, he loves, and you get to know them. Uh, but what Peter Temple is so good about, especially in this book, is the whole um, the the whole issue in Australia of the Aboriginals, and um, and in this book especially, he it, it's two young Aboriginal boys who are accused of um, a, a a murder and. Joe Cashin, the hero, doesn't quite believe they did it. But, you know, there's this, it's the racism in Australia, the, the racism against what they call wogs, which is anybody who comes from the European continent, and then 
um, other words that we're not gonna, we tend not to use in polite company, wog is probably the politest word we can use. They're wonderful, they're intense. There's frequently a lot of violence. Um, for some reason, I can deal with that. Uh, but not scary. But not, but not scary. What does it mean that this was the winner of the CWA Duncan Laurie Dagger Award? So CWA is the Crime Writers of Australia, um, and his books are just universally uh, acknowledged as as some of the best, not only crime fiction, but some of the best novels. One of his novels won the Miles Franklin Award in Australia, major award for literary fiction. So, what year is this book? Oh, this book. Um, this book was published in paperback in um, 2008 by Picador. But you have to find them under different publishers. Quercus brought them out in England. There's a publishing company called Text Publishing from Australia. How long has he been writing? From the 80s. Wow, Peter Temple, The Broken Shore from the 80s. He is well accomplished. I just want to say once again, Acorn Media um, has a series on DVD, two series on DVD based on uh, a series of four books that Peter Temple wrote, The Jack Irish Mysteries. If you're a DVD watcher, if you love British inflected mysteries, um, these are wonderful. The library has them. They're the Jack Irish DVDs. You, you probably should watch them in order. And as good as they are, the Jack Irish books are better. So read those in order. You know, you've, in, the, in the five times, has anybody picked up Peter Temple yet or read him or anybody like him? Have you? Uh, no, but I ordered it from Powell's after. <laughs> well, that's good. Kathy, see you're having an effect. Okay, what's what's in this stack? Okay, so this what's next in this stack. Next in this stack is um, a new novel by a young German uh, named the name the the author's name is Daniel Kelman K E H L M A N N. It's called F. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful translation from the German by a woman named Carol Brown Janeway, who just translates. Um, She's, she is an editor who just translates sort of as a something else to do. And she's a marvelous, marvelous translator. It's one of those translations where you're not constantly aware that you're reading a translation. But this is a really interesting book. It's, it's a book about uh, three brothers. And the father one day takes them to a magic show, and the magician invites the father up to the stage and uses him as the prop in, in one of the acts. And after that, the father drops the sons off at home and disappears and doesn't reappear for a number of years. And the book is told, after that first chapter, the book is told from the point of view of each of the brothers. Now the great thing about this book, the thing that I just so admire about this book is that there are, is that it's a very intelligent book and wonderfully written, but there are no answers. You know, nothing is tied up very neatly. And, and, None of the brothers are particularly 
uh, noble people. That is, you don't have a lot, nor is the father. So none of the characters are people that you would necessarily want to spend time with. My favorite of the brothers is a priest, um, and he is a priest who does not believe in God. And that causes him great, a, a great, great many crises. But he is an expert with a Rubik's Cube. In fact, he's a, he was a Rubik's Cube solver champion when he was a child. But Nancy, obviously you want to spend enough time with them to read the book. You do because, because, you, because they're presented in such a way that they're constantly surprising you. And so it's that surprise about who they are that I think you search for. But this is the opposite of a mystery or a romance or any of the genre novels which, which are going to end in many ways uh, and predictably in a romance the two correct people are going to get together in a mystery they're going to find out who done it and order is going to be restored um, and in this book nothing nothing happens like that and I admire that intensely last week we were talking about uh what the cover might tell us. So given what you just described, what does that cover of a, well, pince-nez or glasses uh, that have a kaleidoscope for the, um, for the eyes, what is that telling me? Well, what do you think? Well, I liked what you said about it nothing being resolved. Yeah. And um, yeah, a psychedelic trip of, and a little yeah. bit confusing. Yes, I, I think it is. I think it is that kind of you're never quite sure where where you are, even though nothing except that one trip to the magic show where something happens. Everybody else is living a pretty ordinary life, um, but n nothing is quite as it seems. It's a marvelous book. F, a novel. Well, now this book, this looks like my kind of book. It, it, I brought this book for you, Steve. It's about birds, and it looks like it's for kids. This is called Avery Wonders, Inc., Spring Catalog and Instruction Manual, Renewing the World's Bird Supply Since 2031. So imagine that we are living in 2031, and the world's bird supply has been sadly depleted, but you want to rebuild not literally, the world's bird supply. So this is a pretend catalog on how to build the bird of your choice. And it is, I, I'm not sure how to take this book actually, and I would just adore it if somebody else would read it. Um, you can choose what kind of beak you want, you can choose what kind of collars you want, you can choose what kind of crests you want. I'll pass the book around the table. Gives you assembly instructions. Um, you could dress them up in different, um, oh, how to, yes, different, right, how to attach the wings. And then at the end, there's um, a, a, a question and answer section. <laughs> Called troubleshooting. Right, right. I ordered a bird of prey, but I didn't expect it to look so frightening. It's scaring my children. What can I do? Answer, adding the right crest or or collar will soften your bird's appearance. For example, it's bound to look less intimidating wearing the Granny Warhol in pink. 
<laughs> but, but, I, but I love this one. Um, my bird spends a lot of time with its head down. Is it depressed? Possibly, but possibly not. It looks top heavy. Try removing the wattle and comb and, or, or using a smaller beak and see if it perks up. I mean, it's, it's just great. I, I, uh, such a wonderful book. Any, any information about the author in that that gives you a sense of? No, no. <laughs> Interestingly enough, she just studied painting um, and it, it was inspired by a visit to Brazil where she saw a lot of birds and, uh, and uh, you know, found a passion for bird watching. How fun. So it's just oh, it's a lovely, lovely book. The library has it, of course, and bookstores. It's available anywhere. I just think it's great fun. Very fun. It was that in the children's section, yes, obviously. obviously. So, what's your last book? My last book is a Mara Kalman book. Mara Kalman is one of my favorite illustrators and authors. And in this book, she was asked by the Cooper Hewitt Museum, Museum of Design in New York, to pick some of her favorite things from the museum and in this book she does that and the book is called My Favorite Things um, but she has a wonderful imagination a wonderful sense of of art and design and oh just a, a wonderful might not be my taste might be my taste in some things but she just loves many 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 things and it's a perfect melding of the cooper hewitt's sensibility and an artist's sensibility and, and she so she drew them she, she drew, drew her yes. favorite things yes and, and painted them and, and painted them right right and it begins with a little bit of a biography of her life um and that's very interesting yeah, your family came from a village in Belarus. Right. We're, we're going Eastern European today, apparently. Yes. But anything but that Mara Kalman does is, um, I think, worth Where, worth where have you seen her otherwise? Oh, many, many, many different books. Yes. I don't know if there's a list of them here. But just beautiful end papers in this book. They're works of art, and they're published by... A, um, a, a part of Harper Collins called Harper Design. Do you often reach for books with images? I become more interested in images. I think I I um I notice the things that I'm tweeting lately, mostly because I can't keep tweeting about Peter Temple every day. <laughs> are are things from um, are interesting reading associated pictures that I'm that I found on on the internet. You, you like books with pictures, Katie. I do. I'm currently working my way through all of the paintings in the Vatican in a giant coffee table book, and I'm reading it the whole way through. Really? Yeah. So from your experience in Rome, you decided you're going to just look at every picture and know something about it. Right, because when you're actually there, it takes too long to like actually sit and look at every single image that's there. It would take... 30 hours, you know, or something like that. So now I'm doing it in the privacy of my own home. Have you learned anything of particular note? Anything stick in your head? Uh, it's more just how, I mean, a lot of it's religious art. So it's more just how religious art has evolved through the centuries. Huh. And uh, how you can see traces of other people's work, you know, from one, you know, from 
1 AD in people's work in the 15th century and the 16th century. Hmm. So, Got any novels for her based on that? Well, no, but there was this novel. Um, there was this really interesting novel that I cannot at the moment remember the name of. But one of the characters was doing her doctoral dissertation on the effects of um, Emily Dickinson on Christopher Marlowe's plays, say. And of course you think, what? That's a typo. It's Christopher Marlowe would have a, you know, an influence. But in fact, everything new makes us re-look at and reinterpret the past which I had never thought of in quite those terms when I read that. So that, and it wasn't Christopher Marlowe, it was Emily Dickinson, but it was not Christopher Marlowe. Are, are you doing that? Are you reinterpreting the past based on you know, your experiences? <laughs> um, I don't know, I guess I'm learning from the past. I don't know if I'm reinterpreting yet. Maybe if I become more of a scholar. I, well, I was... The point being that we live in the present age and so when we look back, our interpretation of past events is colored by the present age. Absolutely, and you see that when you read books of, about colonial Britain. Um, you know, things that were totally accepted at that time, we read them now and we just, you know, or I read them now and I just cringe. Um, so we're constantly rewriting the past, I think. And I, I think that, I mean, that's something that has lots of consequences that we tend not to think about. That's great, that's great. Sarah, what are you reading? Well, right now I'm just finishing up a, it's a great story about, it's the same kind of different as me, and it's a semi, I think it's autobiographical, but I'm not sure. It's written by Denver Moore and Ron Hall, and it's about how a man who comes from the South, he is the son of a sharecropper, and it's, it's almost, it's, I guess the subtitle is something like The History of a Black Slave. Um, but it's almost contemporary times. And he is a relic of the old plantation system. And so he is a contemporary of ours, but he is still illiterate and uneducated and can't read. Um, but he works his way off of the plantation by jumping on a train and going to Fort Worth, where he meets a man named Ron Hall, who is a art buyer. And it's about how they come, how their lives come to intersect. And it's just, it was, I was not expecting it to be as great as it was, but it turned out that they both had so much to offer each other, and they also had so much in common. And it was so, I really enjoyed it. He was a, he was a modern day slave, I see. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that book? Mm -mm. Wait, show me the title. Same kind of different as me. Same kind of different as me. Uh, Ron Hall. That's interesting. How'd you come to that? Oh, I'm in a book club, and we all just decided to. One of the women recommended it, but I was just intrigued with the fact that you know we don't realize that even though slavery's been abolished, that lifestyle of you know people enslaved on plantations has continued to persist over generations and that was surprising to me I, you know naively you think that slavery has been abolished so everybody goes out and they work for you know money <laughs> turns out not so much I like to always see if I can put a quarter in you and then get a book out so is that does that any other books rise from that one 
Not yet. Let me think. Right. It'll come. Right. I haven't seen the quarter. Show me. <laughs> Show me the quarter. I would say probably read the Finding Your Roots companion book because the, fi the Finding Your Roots companion book to the TV show. Because on the TV show, they go through, I really love genealogy, and on the TV show, they go through stories, and then the companion book really goes deeper into things because they don't have enough time in, like, the 20 minutes per game. Oh, so just as a way to follow up on what, what we're learning from yeah. the modern-day experience. Yeah, because a lot of people African-American roots and ancestry in slavery, and it's quite interesting because some people don't even know it. What else are you, what are you reading, Jessica? Well, I was actually, when I went to visit my parents' house last week, I was digging through their house for treasure, as I like to think of it, because they have lots of books and lots of interesting family photos and things. And I found The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury. Um, it's a book that was published, I think, in 1972. But it looks so Halloween to me that I'm dying to read it. And it's actually signed by Ray Bradbury because my mom was also a librarian and worked at the local public library, and he must have came and promoted the book. So I took it home with me to read. And it looks like it completely captures the soul of the holiday. So I'm excited. Ray, Ray Bradbury is somebody who writes scary books that are good. I read Something Wicked This Way Comes a long time ago. I thought that was brilliant. Do you, do you read Ray Bradbury? I, I do read I do read um, Ray Bradbury, but I don't remember. I think when I read Something Wicked This Way Comes, I was just a little kid, and it was way too scary. Yeah, but you were asking for Halloween books, and I thought, oh, I picked this up yeah. in my treasure hunt. <laughs> I was on a radio program with Ray Bradbury, and he was very complimentary. He said um, it was because everybody was choosing his book, Fahrenheit 451, to be their community reading thing, and... and uh, which we had begun here in Seattle, and he said, and I think Nancy Pearl should just choose what everybody's reading around the country. <laughs> when was this? It was like, it must have been in 1999, 1999 2000. It was on um, Warren Olney's uh, To The Point. I believe that's the one it was. Did you get to uh, spend no. any time with him at all? No, we weren't together. I was at KUOW, and he was at whatever station he was there. He's one of those writers I would have liked to have met yeah. and talked with, Ray Bradbury. He'd be interesting. Did you ever meet Ray Bradbury, David? I, I can't say that I did. <laughs> what are you reading? Well, uh, I rely heavily on serendipity. I, I spend a lot of time at the Little Free Libraries, and I picked up a book that was here. Uh, called Palm Beach Nasty, which is uh, a advanced copy of uh, Mr. Ryder's book. Um, uh, basically, a guy um, who's on the police force who's come down from New York uh, and is tired of working just run-of-the-mill Palm Beach stuff suddenly catches a good murder and then gets another. And um, I'm getting ready to read a book. None of these are Halloween themes, Ellie. Uh, also on how I became a geek mom. Uh, a mother's effort because I have two children to um, and I may have gotten the title slightly wrong on that but uh, how to get her kids interested in science by learning about science and showing them cool stuff that they uh, can do and I just finished The Racketeer by John Grisham I, I keep several books going at once yeah. uh, How I Became a Geek Mom so, so you're going to practice I, 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 don't, uh, I unfortunately didn't bring it with me uh, but it was basically how I became a geek uh, to my children so I could teach them 
And I don't remember the author. Adventures of a Geek Mom? No, that's not it. That could be it. All right, we'll look for it. Okay, and I'll look for it too. Um, how many kids do you have? Two. I've got a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. What, um, what are they my, reading? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my, well, you know, that just might work. Uh, my son is, I think, a budding scientist. And uh, my daughter loves fairies. Uh, just uh, really into the princess and fairy thing, which is a great time. This is a great time of year for that because uh, she's got a lot of choices in costumes. Yeah, yeah. So your daughter's six? She's seven. She's seven? Yeah. Seven-year-olds who like fairies. Any, anybody got book suggestions for that? Fairies. You, you, you read some fairy books, but they were for older kids? Maybe I'm... Well, magic. Well, is there a big collection of, I, I, I'm tempted to get this book for it, but I think it's too old. There was a big coffee table book many years ago called Fairies, F-A-E-R-I-E-S, and I, I don't know if that's too mature for her or not. Yeah, it, I don't think it has much of a plot. It's just, but pictures, it's pictures of fairies, yeah. and she loves right. uh -huh. just to look at them and uh -huh. read about them, so maybe it'll be. Is that Graham Base? Yeah, it might be Graham Base, B-A-E-S-E. Yeah. Fairies. Fairies. Little girls and fairies. Haven't you all, you guys were all little girls. Didn't you all read books about fairies? <laughs> Say that again. When I was a kid, I read The Babysitter's Club. And those were fun because it was all about girls, I don't know, growing up, being babysitters. Katie and I are deciding who's doing the miking. I'll do it. All right. <laughs> what, what, fair, fairy books? I read all the Oz books from beginning to end. I, that was my substitute for which fairies. Was, which was your favorite Oz book? The first one, of oh. course. Although Princess Ozma was pretty spectacular. She didn't come in until later. The Ozma of Oz was my yeah. favorite, where they where this bad person changes them all into little knickknacks and Dorothy has to go through that room and choose who are, you know, what the Tin Woodman was turned into and all of that. I have, that's stuck in my head. I love that part. Yeah. Oh. What was that one called? The Oz? No, it was just called Ozma of mm -hmm. Oz. We want to know what Kate's reading. I just finished, and going to need to start it all over soon, um, David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks, um, which is a wild ride of a read, um, and I will read it again, but um, my antidote in between is I have a daughter-in-law who's an as-yet-unpublished um, young adult books writer, and she recommended that I read two books by Elizabeth Wine, or Ween, um, the first one's called um, Codename Code Verity. Verity, and the second is Rose at War, or some such. And they, they were extraordinary books. I thought it was going to be sort of Nancy Drew wins the war, and it wasn't. Um, and the second one had some very sophisticated poetry in it that moved the story forward. I cried a lot, and I think Probably not a whole lot of teenagers or young adults read them, will read them, but from what I've been hearing from my um, teenage granddaughters, the Holocaust isn't being taught real thoroughly in schools, in high schools, and I think that this is the part that's missing, and I wish that they would read them and talk about them in school. Rose, Rose Under Fire. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, Rose Under Fire got too heavy for yep. me, so I stopped reading it. But uh, I loved, loved, loved Codename Verity. It was when you talked about the bone clocks and you had to go back. You wanted to go back and reread it. I felt with Codename Verity when I got to the end that I that I really wanted and I did go back to the beginning and read it again, knowing what was going to happen and seeing how the author, how Elizabeth Wine, um, arranged the the narrative of the book to tell us, give us everything we needed to know to know yeah. how it would end, and yet no one could guess. The second book has an extensive bibliography and her notes about how she researched and how, how she got that one put together. I recommend trying it again, even if yeah. you pick it up in the middle and try to stay a little bit less emotionally engaged yeah. because right. it, it, was, it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, my scary book, by the way, was The Shining, read it sort of in one gulp while my husband was out of town. My four young children were sleeping down the hall, and that was about it for scary for me. That scared the heck out of me. <laughs> There's a trilogy that I want to um, mm. suggest both for your teenage grandchildren and for your daughter-in-law who is writing, and I just have to look up what it is, okay. but it's set during World War II, um, in, 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 uh, on an island between France and Spain, kind of. Um, so part of it is based on fact. Real people appear. The Kennedy family appears. Joe Kennedy, um, the oldest son, Joe Kennedy Jr., Kick Kennedy are characters in Volume 3. Um, but I just thought it, it, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, not-read-enough trilogy mm. because these days anything that isn't fantasy tends not to, to sell. Okay, while you're looking that up, I have a question, and then I'm going to come back to you on that too, Nancy. You said the Bone, what was that book called? Bone Clocks. The Bone Clocks. David was Mitchell. a wild ride, and you had to start it over again. Um, and then Nancy talked about, or you talked about getting some reset, or Nancy talked about getting some reset for the other book. What do you mean by it was a wild ride? I mean, what happened that you finished it and wanted to start over again? It I, I heard David Mitchell's lecture at Town Hall, and he talked about himself as a writer of novellas that overlap and connect. And I was loving the words and the forward motion and so on, and I realized that I had missed parts of the plot. There were just things missing. Um, and the changes of century and and people who appear, disappear, reappear. Um, there, there was some roller coaster there. Not in a bad way, but um, challenging. So in going back, have you started it again yet? You're no, going to I'm not ready. <laughs> why, why is that? Well, I want to read some other things. Um, partly it's 600 pages. I'd kind of like to wait till it comes out in paperback. It's uncomfortable physically. Yeah. Um, but in any case, I will, because I, I love his writing. Yeah. It's a process. You're a rereader. I am a rereader, but I've had some bad experiences rereading. So recently, two books that I just loved when I first read them, and I went back and re tried to reread them, and just was not—I didn't connect with them. But the Bone Clocks I loved as well. I thought it was—it was just a terrific 
um, headlong rush through those those novellas and how he connected them. Um, and it's the kind of thing where you just want to move a little bit. I mean, you just sort of want him to, in some ways, concentrate more and more. You want to know more about some of the characters. Yes, yes. Yeah. In his next book, perhaps, yeah. come back. Right, and it made me want to go back and reread um, his uh, Cloud, Cloud Atlas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but my favorite of his was Jakob de Zut, uh -huh. and I, I really, I love that book. And I'll read that one again, uh -huh. too, and I'm not a rereader, uh -huh. generally. Where's he from, David Mitchell? England. He's from, uh, from England, and he wrote a very autobiographical novel called Black, Black Swan Green, about growing up. Yeah. Thank you for the... David, David found the name of that book, by the way, Mama Gone Geek. Oh, yes, Mama Gone. <laughs> I put it on my phone. Mama Gone Geek, calling on my inner science nerd to help navigate the ups and downs of parenthood. Good. All right. We also will put a list out as well. Okay, so here is the series for your, for, for your family. Thank you. They're the Montmarey Journals, M-O-N-T-M-A-R-A-Y, and they're by Michelle... Yeah, Michelle Cooper. Okay, thanks. And they should be at, I mean, they're, of course, at the library, and they should be at almost every bookstore. When, when were these written? These were just written uh, last year, the last couple of years. And they're written as a diary form, so I think, uh, me too. Yeah. And, and these are good for adults. I mean, I read mm. them as an adult, so. <laughs> um, and I really like them. Thanks. Can I ask a question? What were the two books for you reread that weren't uh, as good yeah. the second time? The and why weren't they as good the second the, time? The two books that I reread, I just want to say they're marvelous books, and I highly recommend people reading them. And the first one is called The Last Good Kiss by James Crumley, which the title comes from a poem by Richard Hugo, a wonderful poem by Richard Hugo. The Last Good Kiss by James Crumley has a terrific... Um, a terrific opening line, um, and it's about a private detective trying to track down uh, someone. And there's a lot of, uh, it opens in a bar, and I think it closes in a bar. There's a lot going on. And it's all, it, if I had to make a list of like my hundred favorite books, that book would be one of high up on that list. Um, the other book. So what happened? But why why does I it read it? I don't know. It just didn't have that charm that it had for me. I read that this summer. Yeah. What? Oh, good. I read it this summer. My friend Tim said, "No, you got to read this. Yeah. This is this is emblematic yeah. of an era," yeah. and it was. And I liked it a lot. And yet, the era was one I would rather forget. <laughs> my era, you know, an era of my life of of a little too much debauchery and a little too much negativity. And, and so I was, uh, I, I picked up another book by Crumley, and then I said, no, nah, I'm not ready yet. No. no, that's his best book, I think, um, The Last Good Kiss. And that first line, I wish we could remember it because it's a great first line. But, um, but it is emblematic of an era, and maybe that what was, that's what was sad to me about it, that I wasn't in that era any longer, and so I, I couldn't make a connection to it. 60s or over man. 
Yeah, they are. They are. Good dog in that book, though. Yes. There was a good dog in that book. There was a good dog in that book. Like the good dogs in Peter Temple's book. <laughs> and, and the other book? The other book was called, um, very, very different, called The Fountain Overflows by Rebecca West, which is a family story, a family novel um, in um, late Victorian late Victorian times, I think, maybe a little later. I read it when it was part of a series that um, Dial Press was bringing out, the Virago books, highlighting unknown or little-known women, British writers. And um, I think that book begins something like, Papa has lost his job again. And it's a big family in London, and, and I, it... It's, you know, if you like um, Anthony Trollope, I always think that you would like this book, you know, sort of to get into the, into it and meet the characters. And I just wanted something, I think, at that time that had much, much more of a fast-moving plot. I just couldn't sit and read it. So sad. So, so, I was so upset. Because you'd loved it once and you I couldn't loved again. It once and it's been reissued by New York Review Press, which I or New York Review Books, I guess it's called, which is a small independent publishing company that I greatly admire. So it's available. Kathy, what are you reading? I'm reading Jan Morris's Trieste which she says is her last book, and there is such a melancholy in it. It might well be. I'd be very d disappointed if that is the case. And I, I, did, uh, I do know some fairy books, because now I have granddaughters going through that. And um, we were supposed to be a... We were going as an oil spill at a 4th of July parade, and the little granddaughters got it, but they insisted on wearing their fairy and princess costumes. <laughs> and it was very confusing for the people in the crowd. Uh, but... Um, a fairy book from the 1920s about is You Need a Silver Penny to Get into Fairyland. It's a collection of poetry. And then there are at all, probably almost a dozen uh, fairy books by Andrew Lang, the Crimson Fairy right. Book, the Blue Fairy Book, the, mm -hmm. you know, the Green Fairy Book. So there you are. Scary? Any scary books? Well, I like... Several other people at the table. I read a scary book 30 years ago that finished me for scary books. My children, uh, my adolescent children, had started reading Stephen King, and I wasn't familiar with him, so I picked up a Stephen King to catch up, and it was The Fire Starters. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I didn't read Stephen King again for 30 years or any other scary book until he wrote. Um, different seasons, the Shawshank Redemption uh, novella. Anyway, so I'm, I'm off scary books, evidently. It's interesting about that. Maybe it's Stephen King that's put us off scary books, because he's a pretty scary writer. But he's a good writer. He's a wonderful writer. The, the secret I discovered reading Cujo, I think, to his scary books is the victims in his books are children. And that's horrible. And that's when I quit, why I quit reading Stephen King, is because I didn't like that most of the plots revolved around terrible things happening to little kids. 
I, I, that resonates. <laughs> I teach um, I, once a year or so a class at the information school, teach librarians to be. And one of the questions I always ask them is how many of them have read Stephen King? And a surprisingly small number of people have read Stephen King and partly I think because we at when I last did this you know we had a lot of English majors and there's still this snobbery going around you know snobbery existing about anything that isn't deemed a literary novel and um, so I always challenge people who think they don't like Stephen King to read um, to read his novella not the Shawshank Revenge Redemption, but another one that was made into a no. Not the one. Not Stand by Me. A different one. Uh, one. Three of the books. Three of the novellas from that uh, book, I believe, were turned into movies. Shawshank Redemption, Stand by Me. I can't remember the third one. It's having the same problem. I'll, I'll look it up. But it was. It's amazing that that book. What was it? I don't think no, The Shining was a separate book, but it was pretty amazing that three of those four novellas were turned into movies. You know, um, when I interviewed Stephen King, I like to say that, and I do not, and I do not, and I do not look like him. Uh, but when I interviewed, people kept saying I look like Stephen King. No, I took I, a picture side by side. Yeah, it's true, they do not look alike when yeah. they're standing next to each other. We took a picture side by side, so we put it on the web. I did, but in any event, he talked about that snobbery. He was kind of, you know, he was like done with it, but he understood it. But he is such a craftsman. He's so much of his, he cares so much about his work that it, it, it does rankle. Like you can see it rankles him because he knows he's a good writer. Yeah, and plus, you know, he's been married to the same woman for many, 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 many years, Tabitha King, who is a novelist in her own right. Um, I, I, I have a lot of admiration for for Stephen King's stick-to-itiveness, stick recovering from a terrible, terrible accident where he almost died. And I would give anything if I could remember the name of the novella that made me go back and read Stephen King. Right. Well, we're going to find it by the end of this little session here. David, you, did I ask you if you read scary books? Yeah, I, I like scary books. I haven't read any in a, in a long time, and uh, I am uh, a big Stephen King reader. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite of his was a book called It, uh, which was, uh, <laughs> if you don't like clowns, this is perfect for you, because it was kind of a dangerous, frightening, no clowns, avenging man. clown. Uh, and um, I've, always, I've always loved his books. From, uh, it's, some of the ones don't necessarily involve kids, uh, and Kids Falling Victim, Gerald's Game is a good example. Um, but I think that that makes it extra scary, because it involves kids. So I, I, I haven't read anything by him in the last couple of years, um, primarily because they're always so big. And I will read a big book. I recently finished uh, History of Saturday Night Live, which was kind of an oral history, and that was a very thick book. But, um, you know, sometimes you look at it. He's got one about a cell phone, I believe, that came out in the last yeah. couple of years. And I look at that and I say, man, that looks really great. I want to read it. But you just, that's kind of like, they used to call it appointment television. This is appointment reading. And I haven't had the time for that appointment. But you're missing out on some of Stephen King's really good novels. Because, I mean, his recent ones, the one, um, I think the most recent, the one about uh, a man who decides to go back in time to mm -hmm. 
prevent the shooting of President Kennedy oh, yeah. is, is, is really good. Um, and that's and, a big one. I and mean, that's a really, big. really big one. But I remember reading it and just getting, um, just not being able to get up from my chair because I wanted to. I mean, that's what Stephen King does so well, scary right. or not, is that he, he, you know, you, you, with all your heart, you don't want to turn the page because you right. don't want to find out what happens on that page because somebody's going to die or something. But he makes you turn that page because you're driven, you're driven to do that. But for people who haven't read Stephen King, and I would say want to just see what he's like at his very best, he wrote a, a, um, a novella called Hearts in Atlantis, and it's not that kind of, it's not, it doesn't have children being harmed. Um, it was made into a terribly miscast movie, so ignore the movie, but boy, read, read that Stephen King novella. It's amazing. Sounds great. When I was a, brief story, when I was a high school student, I had a substitute teacher that used to come in, and she would say at the beginning of class, here's what your teacher says we need to accomplish today. As soon as that's done, I'll read you another Stephen King short story. And we would just blaze through whatever it was that we had to get done that day. And then she'd, you know, in 10 minutes if possible, and then she'd sit down and be like, okay. And she especially loved it when she was there for a whole week, because then she'd pick a longer story and have us going all week long. And we just loved it. I, if you're a substitute teacher out there and you need some ideas, that's the way to get us to snap too, I'll tell you. It really worked. Just scare them. <laughs> well, and just to having a, a, an adult read you a story. I mean, that's so ingrained as a kid. Everyone reads you a story. Nobody reads you a story once you're a high school student. And we were still ready for story time, and happily so. Stephen King just made it a little more gripping. Did David find the name of that, that novella you were trying to figure out? Oh, the novella is called Hearts in Atlantis. Oh, uh, yes. Apt Pupil was the name of the third uh, story that was turned into a movie from different seasons. With Ian McKellen. Yes. I like to test my trivia. What are your, what, yeah, scary books for you, by the way? The, scary no, ones? I don't really like scary books. <laughs> I mean, I loved Halloween as a child, and I would always decorate my house. And, but I'm not a seeker of scary books. I do seek dead people as a genealogist, but. That's not the same. That's not the same. Katie does that. I, uh, so so uh, Robert Horton and I were arguing about I, uh, scary movies. I just can't abide them because I find them either deliberately yanking my chain when I know it's not real, so I can't suspend my disbelief, or I find them too exploitive of, of people, too, too violent, too gory. And uh, he tried to... Uh, dissuade me of that by arguing, you know, there is a part of the psyche that uh, is attracted to that and finds that appealing, and we should explore that as we explore all the other parts of the psyche to understand what's happening. And let yourself go, man. It's just a good thrill ride, and then it's over. doesn't work for me, though. Does that, how does that argument sit with any of you guys? No? Everybody's saying no. Yeah, well you know, one of my favorite scary movies is not a hacker film or anything like that. It's just really taut suspense. And it's called um, Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn. Now that is a scary movie, well done. Uh, and there's a little bit of violence, but it's just centering around the closing of the world of a woman 
who's blind, who's living in an apartment, who has a criminal plot going on around her. And the end is just, just, you know, it's just amazing. But it's not what you consider one of today's scary movies. It's just a well-done, almost Alfred Hitchcock-style movie. Well, that's... Yeah. I mean, I think two very scary movies for me. This was a double feature that my husband and I went to before we got married. I think this should have, and he loved both movies, and this probably should have given me a hint. But um, alas, no. So the two movies, which I spent most of those five hours hiding on the on the floor of the movie theater underneath the seat, blocking my ears so I couldn't see it, The Pawnbroker. The Pawnbroker and The Hill with Sean Connery. No one ever has ever seen The Hill. It was a war movie. I saw it. And see, those to me were really scary, um, but not the ghosts and goblins and, 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 and like the Jim Jarmusch movie. Um, Dead, Dead Flowers? No, the one um, Only Lovers Left Alive or something. Oh, okay. I, they're talking about wait until dark and, and then the kind of movie you were talking about with the blood and gore. And my little note to myself was suspense versus violence. And I think the suspense I, I don't do very well, but the violence, I, I don't like your reading of the front page of the paper. I don't need that. I don't want it. Right. Um, I liked scary movies and scary books when I was young, and I think it's because I didn't realize life was scary. When I got older and realized that life was scary and, you know, these terribly violent or suspenseful things do happen, it lost its appeal as a recreational activity. I think it has to do with, um, with, with sadness in a way, too. I, I mean, I think the older... Maybe that you get the more aware of the possibility of of people inflicting pain on other people. I guess that's the bottom line for me: is people inflicting psychological or physical pain on somebody else. I I think that's why I bury myself in books when I know that it's fiction and I don't have to I don't have to think about it. Um, can I share another story? <laughs> so yesterday I, I interviewed a middle schooler who likes watching horror films about her life. Um, I actually interviewed her originally, as Steve has heard the interview, as a four-year-old talking about horror films, and I was checking in with her 10 years later as a more of an adult. And she's still absolutely crazy about watching horror films and um, does it all the time. But I asked her, she kept saying, well, it's prepared me. It's prepared me. And I said, well, what has it prepared you for? And she said, well, I know not to run into the yard. And I said, well, what is that supposed to mean? And she said, well, you know, in the movie Scream, for instance, when the girl gets a bad phone call, she runs out into the yard to try to get help. And that doesn't work. She, and I said, well, what should she have done? And she said, called the police. <laughs> but when it really comes down to it, she just isn't scared of it in that real way, it's in that entertainment way, you know, like, it's, it's just for fun, you know? And she said, she said it in a nice way, she said, it's not like I'm influenced in a bad way by these films, like, I'm not evil, I just wa like watching scary movies. It's for, it's for fun. 
I get that, but I'm just with I'm just with you guys. I'm with you too. It's just there's so much in the world that is disturbing that's real. Uh, here's a list. I just I I found a list. I just just tell me if you've read any of these. I'll just give you this is different people's ten scariest books. Here's one. Um, Haunted by Chuck Palahniuk, and this person said, I'm, I, this book churned my stomach the whole way through, so disturbing. Here's a seller for you. Uh, Necroscope by Brian Lumley. I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, which is, which is interesting that it was a scary book, right? Because it was a science fiction book. Yeah. Yeah, with Will Smith. Yeah. Um, and also, wasn't it the same one that was earlier, uh, 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 Charlton Heston version of that as well? I didn't see that one. Yeah, I think so. Um, the Relic by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. You... I, no, never. <laughs> uh, the Rising by Brian Keene. Um, the American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. But there was a... There was a... Good movie. You love the movie? Yes. Um, the Road to Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Angel Dust Apocalypse, The Shining by, by Jeremy J Robert Johnson, The Shining by Stephen King, House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danileski. Well, I, you know, that's like one of those metafictional, funny printing, all that sort of thing. I tried to read it, but I didn't stop because, because it seemed scary. I sort of stopped because I just was lost. Sorry to admit that. <laughs> The Haunting of Hill House is a, a good read, frightening in a way, but um, but I I've read none of those books on that top ten list. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Shirley Jackson is another wonderful, wonderful writer in The Haunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Those are two terrific, eerie. I think eerie books and and um, the haunting of hill house was made into a not very good movie but uh, the book is great i read recently monstro by juno diaz and it's not like a classic scary short story but you it's one of those ones where you read it and it just it comes after you for days and i remember thinking oh this is a lovely little short story you know read through it no, it, it's it's really it, it was it turned out to be one of the scariest things I've read. Who, who's the author? Juno Diaz. Yeah. And Juno and what Diaz. was what made it scary? Or, or what was it about? Well, it was about some some scientific nuclear kind of thing happened that created some sort of a creature, and throughout the piece, you get the idea that something really horrible and world-changing is going to happen, but you're never quite sure what. And then you have these characters in it who are just insipid. Some of them are just ridiculous. And so it's that whole juxtaposition between, you know, Armageddon and, you know, stupid people. <laughs> and so it was really, but it was scary, I thought. <laughs> yeah, why do they have to go and hide behind the chainsaws, which is what that commercial says. Well, there's a actual there's a poem I'll try to find and bring next next week when we do this again at 10 o'clock. Meet at 10 instead of 10:45 next week. Um, but it's by Dylan. It's by um, Ogden Nash, 
and it's called Had I But Known, and it makes fun of all those mysteries where the people say, oh, had I but known that this trap door would lead to blah, 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 you know, I never would have opened it, but all those that seemed to have some relevance to what we were talking about. Very good. Any last words from anybody or from you about anything at all? Did we learn something about you and Joe that he might not want to hear later when he's listening to this podcast? (laughs) Oh, the time for secrecy is past. Here's the first line from that James Crumley book. When I finally caught up with Abraham Traherne, he was drinking beer with an alcoholic bulldog named Fireball Roberts in a ramshackle joint just outside Sonoma, California, drinking the heart out of a fine spring afternoon. Isn't that a great first line? You must try the book. Sarah Hunter, Jessica Anderson, David Volk, Kate Campbell, Kathy Ehrenberg, Katie Sewell, Nancy Pearl, Steve Scher. We were part of that stack of books today. Thank you all. Thanks to Sarah Swanson and Chris Moser. I thought we should start thanking them. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Since they let us come to the Bryant Corner Cafe. so And disrupt. And now they're getting a crowd, so we'll clear out. Uh, Sarah Swanson, Chris Moser, Bryant Corner Cafe. Thank you all. Thanks. I hope you found us on Stitcher or at iTunes, that stack of books. You can also find us on the web, that stack of books. Also, we have a Facebook page of the same name. Why don't you go there? Tell us what you think. Tell us what you're reading. Maybe Nancy will have some suggestions for you. Also, you can find us at Twitter at that stack. And you can email us with your book suggestions, your book topics, what you're reading, just about anything really. That stack of books at gmail.com. Well, not anything. Recipes would be okay, though. And we'll see you next Tuesday if you're in the neighborhood, the Bryant Corner Cafe on 65th and 32nd. Otherwise, we'll find you back here in the magical world of podcasting. Thanks a lot.